I've been getting in my steps, lifting weights, and now I'm trying really hard to get as much protein as I can. That's why I'm excited about trying Clean Simple Eats because they're just that, clean and simple. Their protein powder is always grass-fed with no seed oils or artificial ingredients. It's third-party tested and non-GMO and gluten-free. They've got 26 delicious all-natural flavors. You really can't go wrong with any of them. They've got Simply Vanilla and other unique flavors like cookies and cream, caramel toffee, and even cinnamon roll. I have a feeling my entire family may just like Clean Simple Eats protein powder, and they're probably going to use it every day because it's so easy to put into your milk or a recipe my daughter loves to bake or in a smoothie, which my son loves to drink almost every day. You can It's amazing really in any form. Visit cleansimpleeats.com and use the code ASKLISA20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's cleansimpleeats.com with the code ASKLISA20 for 20% off your first order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is Ask Lisa, a podcast to help people understand the psychology of parenting, now in the midst of a pandemic. Psychologist Dr. Lisa Damore, author of two New York Times best-selling parenting books, takes your questions. And I'm co-host Rena Ninen, a journalist and mom of two. Some of what we talk about comes from raising children ourselves. Most of the time, I'll be getting answers to your parenting questions. So send your questions to asklisa at drlisademore.com. Episode 38, How Do I Teach My Kids About Consent? So it's so exciting to see teenagers that are able to get vaccinated. I kind of feel like it's going to be the summer of love for everybody. You do feel that, right? That these teenagers have been so hemmed in. And finally, we are able to safely let them roam as they should. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if I were a teenager, I'd be like, man, I have some lost time to make up for. <laughs> can't blame them. Really can't blame them. It's been hard for everyone. We got an incredible letter from a mom in Australia talking about consent, which made me think about all these things, conversations we need to be having as we're emerging out of this. Right. And that we can finally have conversations about normal development again in a different kind of way. So right, Lisa. So she writes here, Dear Lisa, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Thank you for your wisdom and valuable parenting tips. My question is a big one. How do we teach our kids about consent when it comes to teen relationships? I live in Sydney, Australia. What should we say in our homes? There's a fine line between coercion and consent, and there are a lot of young girls who don't even realize they're being assaulted. And frighteningly, a lot of boys don't realize that sometimes what they're doing is assault. As a 40-year-old, I can't even wrap my head around this line of thought. When I was a teen, those stories existed, but they seemed to be few and far between. What's changed in the way kids view sex? Can we blame the rise of internet porn available to young minds 24-7 on their phones? Or is it just a lack of education, both in and out of the home? I would so love any wisdom and light that you can share on this. Thank you. First off, you know, where do you even begin as a parent? 
right? I mean, this is so high stakes and so important and so loaded and delicate and hard to even walk up to. So where I begin is kind of different from where a lot of people begin, which is I actually really don't like focusing on the word consent. I I think there's problems with that. So, of course, theoretically, I agree with it. Of course, no one should be expected to do anything in a physical, physically intimate interaction that they have not agreed to. But the term consent is the lowest bar we could possibly articulate here. It is a legal term. It refers to, you know, if you are in court, was the relation, you know, whatever occurred, quote unquote, consensual? Did the person give permission? It is totally, in my mind, like a terrible standard for getting agreement in the bedroom, right? The idea that, like, I got permission is so low. Like, the way I think about it, Rena, the term consent is totally appropriate for things like getting a root canal, right? Or, (laughs) you know, agreeing to a surgery, stuff like that. Yes, like, nobody really wants it, but you do have to give permission. The idea that that has become the focal word when what we're talking about are love lives and what should be mutual and enjoyable. I know it's well intended when adults are talking about consent, but there's a part of me every time I hear it, I'm like, I think we're part of the problem sometimes. Mm -hmm. If that's where we're starting for where kids should be thinking about getting agreement for physical intimacy. So what I hear you saying, you feel like this is the lowest bar because this is a term that you use with legal transactions and a, a relationship is not a legal transaction no. or should be. No, or I'll tell you, I'll tell you exactly how I watch this translate. And this just, oh, Rena, it just makes me so unhappy and so uneasy. Um, one of the things I get to do in the pandemic, it's kind of a remarkable thing, is I, I get to go to schools virtually and I get to speak to students virtually and students get to ask me questions through the chat. So I can see who asked, but I don't know these kids. And then I can read their question out loud without naming them and answer their question for everyone. And it recently occurred, not that long ago, that a student who was clearly female sent a question to me. And it was like, it was like basically this. It was basically like, okay, what if you're hooking up with a guy and he wants to go further than you want to go and you're not really worried for your physical safety but you're afraid that if you say no, he's going to talk bad about you to everybody. Oh, wow. What should you do? And I was like, oh, my Lord, like, that's it, right? So mm. so picture that scenario. And, you know, this is a heterosexual interaction. But these things go down, you know, girls press boys to do things they don't want to do. This happens in all sorts of, you know, romantic configurations. Where, But picture that scenario where the boy's like, hey, let's do this. And the girl's like, uh And either implicitly or explicitly, he communicates that if you don't go along, if you don't give me consent, you're going to get trashed. You're going to be spoken badly of. So she might be like, okay, right? There's consent. Is that in any way what we would consider acceptable for that interaction? Like not even by a mile. I mean, a hundred miles. So if you say this term consent is what you call like the lowest bar. How do you approach this conversation? How do you reach a higher bar? What is the appropriate thing to do? Well, part of what we're up against are these norms. And I'll tell you exactly how I answered that question because the question just blew me out of the water. Absolutely blew me out of the water. 
because the way the kid was asking, it was like this true dilemma, like this true sense of like, I'm stuck in this terrible position. And so I said two things. The first thing I said is, if you, any of you, are in a physically intimate relationship with somebody and they're pushing for something and you indicate hesitation, if you just, you know, if you even verbally or in any other way indicate hesitation, the only acceptable response from your partner is, hey, you're uncomfortable, you're telling me you're uncomfortable, I sense you're uncomfortable, I don't want to do anything you don't want to do, right? That's the only acceptable response. But then I said to the student and also all the students who were listening, the problem here is what you're describing has become very normed. Mm-hmm. That that it's it's so standard, this idea, and it's and it usually is boys get to press and girls are like the boys are the gas in these physical relationships and girls are the break and we endow girls with the responsibility for regulating adolescent sexuality. I said it's so normed that no one should be put in this position and no one should be within 10 feet of somebody who would put them in this position. And yet this has become so standardized that kids are finding themselves in these interactions in a way they absolutely, it just breaks my heart. But Lisa, the reality is teens find themselves in that situation and the guy doesn't say, oh my God, she's uncomfortable in this moment of passion. I'm going to just completely stop and make sure she's okay with this. How do we change that? How do we change what you say is a conventional norm? Well, that moment of passion piece, this, you know, I, I'm imagining, and it's hard to know exactly what goes down. You know, this this writer asked about porn, and, and there is a part of me, as I've unfortunately in my work encountered stories like this, where it does feel like porn is starting to drive some of the script here. Right. Where either um, because guys have been watching lots of porn or they've picked up that script, it can feel, and I, I have been, I've cared for young women who have been in situations where it just feels like however they are expressing the their you know refusal or their lack of interest the train is like going and they cannot stop it and and right. there have been times when i have thought is this fueled by a very you know kind of hypercharged and also kind of you know like we talked about in the porn podcast like aggressive overlay that you see in porn so there's that so one thing you do again do what you can as a parent to shut down kids' access to porn. It makes nothing better, and I think it probably makes a lot of things much worse. Hmm. So when you talk about consent, what does it actually mean? We're having these conversations with kids about consent. It's this big legal term. What, what should we be telling them? You, you know, you talk about this runaway train. You talk about any hesitation. You just stop. What do we need to be saying to our kids? Well, I think we actually need to change the frame entirely. So among my many beefs with the term consent is also the idea of like it has this offense-defense quality to it. Like one person presses, the other person Mm -hmm. holds the line or gives in on the line. And that offense-defense framework really pervades a lot of how we talk to kids about sex. Um, It it, it sort of is there all the time. So I'll give you a for instance. um, We've long studied the talk, you know, finger quotes, the talk. And it turns out there's two different talks. There's the talk we give boys and the talk we give girls. And the talk we give boys tends to be like, uh, dude, if you have sex, be sure to wear a condom. Like that's basically sums it up. That's right. And the talk we give girls is like, okay, don't get pregnant. Don't get an STD. Don't get yourself in a, you know, tricky situation. Um, Some adults say this. I don't say this. I, you know, don't, harm your reputation, you know, but reputation comes into this very heavily. 
But again, it's that like, boys, you, we just think you're going to be, you know, kind of hog wild. And girls, you're in charge of keeping this under control. So that has been the framework. So the whole framework's problematic. So the framework I think we want to operate from as parents is physical intimacy is supposed to be nice. And it's supposed to be nice for everyone involved. And this should be joyful and pleasurable. Okay, this is not always comfortable for parents to be like, my kids' love life should be joyful and pleasurable. I don't want to talk to my kids about their love life. I know, right? Or certainly through that frame. So I think part of what enters into this is our own adult widginess with the ideas <laughs> of like kids, like, true. and especially, I hate to say it, and you know this is true, girls yeah. enjoying physical intimacy. Like, I think we really as a culture have a very hard time with that. We as parents have a very hard time with that. And so we default into this like gas and brakes mode, like, boys, you're going to do what you're going to do. Girls, you got to keep it under control. Yeah. As opposed to, hey, this should be really a wonderful thing. Physical mm. intimacy is, you know, on the short list of like life's joys and constantly renewable joys. And so if we walk into it with that framework, everything starts to get better. You know, this reminds me sort of about sexual abuse and the conversations that you just like, what age do you start talking to kids about when it's inappropriate to be touched in a certain spot and that it happens at a very early age like you know as young as two or three making them aware that you know okay you your parents can touch you here your grandparents who watch you maybe you know setting those guidelines early on but by the time they hit their teens i mean is that when you should be having these conversations should you start at elementary school like what do you need to do That's interesting, right, to think about there is a developmental trajectory where we talk about your body and its privacy and your right to have privacy around your body. So, And I do agree with you. Those are conversations where we should start young, saying to kids, hey, your body's private and, you know, especially the parts that would be covered by a bathing suit, those are very private to you. And I I think, um, you know, if anybody makes you uncomfortable, you should definitely let somebody know. Like, that is really critical. And I do wonder if that then can move that idea of becoming uncomfortable with the way someone wants to be with your body, if we could then extend that into how we talk with, you know, uh, fifth graders, sixth graders. I mean, it's fifth grade, actually, that kids start talking about crushes and romance. You know, that, Mm. that is 10 years old. Like, that's usually when it happens. And it's gone on like that for decades. Yeah. And so I think... um. If kids share a little bit, and sometimes they do, about their, you know, 10-year-old crushes or whatever, yeah, I think then we can start in a, like, a nice sort of um, slow beginning of, like, well, do you want to hold hands? Like, do you right. want to sit next to that person? And yeah. the magic word here, Rena, is want, right? Mm. That want is where, for me, that should be the center of gravity. Like, what do you want? to have happen here. And for boys, we presume the want. And I think wrongly so. We presume all boys are like looking for sex all the time. I, mm-hmm. I, that's not fair that's to right. them. Yeah. For girls, we presume no want. We, we wow. erase that from the conversation. Wow. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back on the Ask Lisa podcast. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but instead of being a dryer sheet, they're in fact an ultra concentrated liquidless laundry detergent. It's really the best of all worlds. EarthBreeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and to your skin. Personally, 
I get a huge kick out of using Earth Breeze. I love the fact that it takes up less space, is better for the environment, and yet it leaves my clothes smelling so good and it gets them so clean. Here's the bottom line. Making a positive impact in the world doesn't have to come at a cost to you. My clothes are clean, they smell great, and I feel like I actually did something good, not just for my laundry, but also for the earth. Right now, my listeners can receive 40% off EarthBreeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash asklisa. That's earthbreeze.com slash asklisa to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash asklisa. I'm all for healthy habits, but I don't trust quick fixes. This is why I love Daily Harvest. They take all of the work out of eating well, and all I have to do is enjoy. Daily Harvest makes it so easy for me to eat in the nutritious and delicious ways that I like. They take the planning, the prep, the cleanup out of cooking, and they deliver meals that are packed with vegetables and fruits straight to my door. The other thing I love about them is that it's not the same old boring meals. I love their dragon fruit and lime smoothie. I also love their butternut squash and rosemary soup. They also have this wonderful herb squash and asparagus risotto. Create healthy habits that last with Daily Harvest. For a limited time only, go to dailyharvest.com slash asklisa to get $30 off your first box plus free shipping. That's dailyharvest.com slash asklisa for $30 off your first box and free shipping. dailyharvest.com slash asklisa. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. We spend a lot of time teaching our kids please and thank you. But one thing I've realized I haven't spent a lot of time teaching my children is how to be financially responsible. We started using the Greenlight app and it's made a difference in helping them have that conversation about money and to really understand how it can affect their lives. Greenlight's a debit card and a money app that's made for families. I can send money to my kids, keep an eye on their spending and their savings. I didn't think I would need this app, but my kids are absolutely loving it and they're getting the concept of what it means to save. I love the lessons they're learning. I love the games they're playing. I love that they are being educated at a younger age that you need to learn how to save. Sign up for the Greenlight app today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash asklisa. That's greenlight.com slash asklisa to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash asklisa. Welcome back to the Ask Lisa podcast. So Lisa, I want to go back to this letter because the parent asks, you know, what's changed in the way kids view sex? Can we blame the rise of internet porn? Is that a factor? I know you mentioned it earlier. What's changed? What do you think? You've been in this field for over two decades. How have you seen this change over the past 10 years or so? I'm not sure it's changed, actually. That part of the letter, I had some questions because this writer says, you know, we didn't, this was rare when we were growing up and now it feels more common. I'm not 100% sure that's true. I I think if we were to go back historically and could, you know, magically see exactly, you know, what the data were on non-consensual interactions, I I think it's got a long, strong history to be true. Wow, that's interesting. I think we're talking about it a lot more. I think it is on the table a lot more. And there's also been a norming of guys acting like jerks as being sexually acceptable. I, I really feel that that has become something. I mean, just the way that kiddo asked me that question, yeah, it just felt like 
so this is the deal. Guys do this. How am I supposed to interact? I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, this is not how it's supposed to be. And if you get a whiff of this, you should be, you know, running in the opposite direction. But the whiff of it has become so normed that that to me feels new. This idea that guys are just going to be out of control and like we just got to manage it as women. Hmm. I want to ask you also about alcohol because that plays into it. What do we need to know about consent and alcohol and what should we be talking about with our kids? Um, Okay, alcohol makes this whole thing that is so messy to start so much messier. So what we know, and we've got good research on this, you know, once alcohol is in the picture, either in terms of the person who's committing the assault or the person who's assaulted, if either party has been drinking, the chances of things going, you know, of there being an assault go up. And, you know, there's lots of ways to slice this, that the person who's drunk has bad judgment and maybe, you know, more likely to assault. You also can't really get consent from someone who has been drinking. So, you know, it just it gets very murky very fast. But it's actually an opening here, Rena, because kids do get drunk to have sex. I mean, drinking and sex do get there's a lot of overlap of those in teenagers And that, for me, has been a way to get back to this idea that this should be fun and pleasurable. Mm -hmm. So when I've talked about it with teenagers, I feel like, guys, like, tell me, like, it's really interesting to me if you think that you need to get drunk to hook up with somebody. Like, let's let's think about why, because this should be really fun for you. And and we don't usually get drunk to do fun things. Like we don't like if you're like, Lisa, would you like some, you know, Ben and Jerry's ice cream? I wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, let me get a little drunk first, you know, and then I'll do it. So to to sort of start, I like to start from the perspective of we have to even question why someone's drinking as a precursor to hooking up. Why do you think that is? I think they're nervous. Mm. I think they're scared. I think, um, you know, you remember, right? I mean, there's something kind of like charged and wonderful about like those early physical interactions. I think they're also kind of terrified. So I think drinking helps them with that. Um, Honestly, we have some research, Rena. This is both totally shocking and not surprising at the same time. Sometimes girls, we have research saying, showing that getting drunk helps them to protect their reputations. That if they might want to you know, try sex or try something, you know, in the grand overlay of what is sex. Yeah. Um, And yet they also worry that they're going to be slut shamed, which Mm. is a totally legit worry that Mm -hmm. young women carry around. If they drink, they can be like, well, I was drunk. Right. So it, it, it becomes this solution to a horrible problem they should never in a million years be confronted with. But as soon as drinking's in the picture, this whole thing gets so messy and so much more uglier than it already was. And so that, but that I do think we can say, like, if you need to get drunk to hook up with somebody, or if you are hooking up with somebody who's drunk, this is already a huge problem, because Mm. this is supposed to be a fun, pleasant, present experience. And alcohol is going to numb that. And, and you're not mm. going to enjoy it as much as if, if you're drunk. And I think that's the part. If we can get around that corner as adults to say, look, this won't be as pleasurable for you if you've been drinking or your partner's been drinking. That's kind of jarring to kids and to grownups to sh- mm. shift into pleasure. Mm. But it does get us back to the want and the mutuality, yeah. which keeps kids safer, keeps kids much safer. Mm. 
I also feel like alcohol is like this magic memory eraser that, okay, we've done it. We've, we've, and then, okay, we don't have to pretend it just can cause so many problems in, in teenager relationships, friendships, but it's hard to have that conversation to get your kids to understand the repercussions of once it's over. Right. That's right. And you know what you say about memory eraser, I think you're like totally on the button. There's so much shame caught up around sex and desire. And I think kids feel it, grown-ups feel it. And so alcohol enters that story as a character who kind of blurs it all, you know, and then I think reduces some sense of shame because it reduces some sense of overall experiencing anything. And and, and I think mm-hmm. if we can try to go after the the shame aspect of this and, and really shift to this idea that young people are curious about physical intimacy and young people are going to want to try physical intimacy and we want them to enjoy it. We want to see it as part of healthy and normal development for them to engage in physical, you know, physical intimacy with their age mates. If we can take the shame away, we also probably reduce the chance that alcohol is part of the story. Hmm. So Lisa, what's your advice for parents, right? What's the conversations we should be having that opens the door, that resonates, gets them to understand, especially in this moment in the pandemic, as things appear to be starting to open up and emerge, and we might be able to reclaim our lives back again as they were pre-pandemic? Right, right. I mean, there's this, oh man, you can just taste it almost, this sense of like life returning. So here's what I would do. Here's, here's, Here's how I like to think about it. So if we toss consent, and if we toss the idea of the offense-defense framework, and if we toss the idea that there's one conversation for boys and one conversation for girls, I think what we're left with is four steps that we can articulate to kids. And I'll lay them out, and then we'll think about how this actually happens in real life. But the first is we want kids to center on what do I want? Like, what do I want to have happen? Do I want to hold hands? Do I want to kiss? Do I want to sit really close? You know, or everything beyond that. So we want kids thinking first and foremost, what do I want? And especially, we want this for our sons and our daughters, but especially for girls. This is a conversation we need to be having. The next thing we then want them to know or think about is, and what does your partner want? And this is the part where we can weave in conversations about, you need to know that person. It's good to have enough of a relationship with that person that you can actually talk about this or find this out. If you don't know the person well enough to actually ask about what they want, you probably shouldn't be making out with them. You know, <laughs> that, that that's, a, that's a good bar. And then the third step is, well, what do we both want? You know, in those Venn diagrams of I want this and you want that, where's the overlap? Where's that shared space? Want to do or want to try? You know, that, 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 that's, you know, what we want kids to be focusing on is that shared wanting. And then the fourth step is making sure that whatever we're both in agreement about, we do safely. You know, so if it's intercourse, you know, heterosexual intercourse, then we need, you know, or do we need to use contraception or, you know, prevent STIs or whatever. But that idea of first, what do you want? Then what does your partner want? Then what do you both want? And I will sometimes say to kids, I'm like, this is where grownups usually use the word consent. For me, way too low a bar. It should be what you want and your partner both want, want to have happen. And then doing whatever you want safely if needed. This is great advice because 
it's so uncomfortable, no matter what age your kid is, to have a conversation about their love life. They're uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable. Nobody wants to have that conversation. But nobody wants to deal with the repercussions of what could happen No, no. after a horrible situation. And so I, I do think, like, in terms of how we weave this into family life, mm. if we start small, you know, do you want to hold hands? Do you think that other person wants to hold hands? How would you find that out? That's, I think, how we put it on the ground in a conversational way in our family life. And then we can sort of take it up from there. Um, as we hear kids talking about other kids, which they do, you know, and talking about other kids maybe being promiscuous as far as they're concerned or whatever, instead of joining in slut-shaming or, you know, whatever, we, we could say, well, do you think that's what she wants? Um, is she getting what she wants out of this? Is that what he wants? Is he accounting for what his partner wants? That we can just keep that word and that idea going of want and shared want is the target. Consent is scraping bottom of gaining agreement, you know, and, and kids do press each other for agreement and then they get agreement. And as far as I'm concerned, that's not okay. Mm. Wow, there's so much from this conversation. If there's one thing that you want to get across to parents about this conversation on consent, Lisa, what would that be? Kids care what we say. Kids do pay attention when their parents lay down values and express opinions. We know this from the research, actually, that when parents are very clear with their kids about what their expectations are and what their values and beliefs are, it, it does shape kids' behavior. And so early and often, I think we should be talking with kids about tuning into what they themselves want when it comes to physical intimacy and then our total expectation that they will be highly attentive to the words and cues that come from anyone they're physically intimate with to make sure that that is also what that person wants. Hmm. Be clear, clear. It matters. There, there's no there's no gray area really here. It is really, it gets gray fast, but I think there are places where we can be very black and white about it. Hmm. That's good to hear that kids really do care because sometimes you feel like you're, you're just talking to a wall, but to hear you as a psychologist tell us that they really do care what we say. They do, they do. They don't show it often though. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. Uh, Lisa, this is so great. And we've got a wonderful giveaway that could be a fantastic resource for parents. Tell us more. So Peggy Orenstein is a journalist and writer I've known for a long time, admired for a long time, know well personally. And she, among her many excellent books, has written two books. One is called Girls and Sex. The other is called Boys and Sex, where she brought the full force of her journalistic skills to understanding the landscape. And they're very current, um, very thoughtful interrogations of girls' experience of the sexual landscape, boys' experience of the sexual landscape. She gets deep into these questions about what goes down and how it goes down and you know what should go down instead. So let's give away one copy of each of those books and, and listeners can enter for the one or both that they'd like to win. That's great. I love the books that you find for us and bring to us, especially the latest releases and the current ones that you are always presenting because we just need more resources as parents. And, and there's certain issues that resonate more with parents. So thank you. This is really terrific. You bet. And what do you have for us for Parenting to Go? Well, actually, Rena, riffing off of what you were saying about, like, it's good to hear the kids are listening because you get the impression yeah. that they're not. I 
love eye rolling. I love, I think it's really? like one of the most fascinating. <laughs> it totally drives parents nuts. I think it's fascinating. I think it serves multiple purposes. I think it's really interesting. I also think that it is a way that kids can thread a very tricky needle of taking in what a parent is saying, but also seeming to rebuff what the parent is saying at the same time. So here's what I mean. If you were to say to your kid, okay, let's have this conversation, and then you lay down the whole sex thing that we just talked about, and they were to say, wow, I am so glad you brought this up. Like, this is so, I've been wondering where you, what your values were and your perspective were on this thing. Okay, that would be super weird. Yeah. So if you say all these things and they roll their eyes, I think the way that parents should receive that is, I heard you. And you can tell I heard you because my eyes are rolling, which means I heard the words you said. And parents should be very satisfied with that because it lets the kid not be super weird about it. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're talking about this. Doesn't mean they did not hear it. It means that the, oh, my God, I can't believe you're talking about this, either verbally expressed or eye-rollingly expressed, is their way of um, taking some of the, the intensity out of a situation that's hard for them, too. A new way to look at things that drive parents crazy. Exactly. (laughs) Thanks, Lisa. I'll see you next week. I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Ask Lisa podcast so you get the episodes just as soon as they drop. And send us your questions to asklisa at drlisademore.com. And now a word from our lawyers. The advice provided on this podcast does not constitute or serve as a substitute for professional psychological treatment, therapy, or other types of professional advice or intervention. If you have concerns about your child's well-being, consult a physician or mental health professional. If you're looking for additional resources, check out Lisa's website at drlisademore.com. We'll see you next week.